Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scale Ups podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, make bigger decisions with greater confidence and maximize the value they can create in the world. I am your host Sean Steele and I'm joined today by Esha Obroy, founder and CEO of, um, I am going to get the name wrong again, Afia. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I have been like practicing in my own mind. Is it Afia? Is it Afia? You say it for me to make sure I get it right for the rest of this podcast. I think you were focusing more on getting it wrong rather than so. right. So maybe you that's what's happened, me. but it's, <laughs> it's Afia Care Services. We're an aged care and disability Absolutely. provider. Yeah, look, I'll make sure we give the, the uh, uh, that we give the audience a bit of context in terms of the background because you are an Australian-based services company uh, delivering services to people with disabilities under the under the uh, NDIS scheme but also to our more mature uh, population under the uh, the my age care scheme and that includes what kind of services actually because that's in-home care obviously case management but what else you're doing financial management as well is that right yeah, we do. So we're we're predominantly a alternative to long stays in hospitals or nursing homes. The the whole premise of the service um, and the offerings that we have is we want people to live for as long as possible in their home independently and integrated in community. So that means that yeah, it's pretty much from you know birth to to palliative care. Um, sort of no sort of age. Uh, differentiation, I guess, the whole thing from disability to to aged care and uh, everything that is supportive services, so personal care, domestic assistance, meal, transport, and then most recently we've started doing financial management and assisting people with disabilities to make decisions around their personal finances. So that's in the form of our second brand that we've launched called mm-hmm. Inabura. And the services plan management under the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Where does scheme. the name Inabura come from? Inabura. So, Afia's vision, our vision is to be the most trusted and leading provider in the country. And uh, our purpose is caring for people you love, and our mission is to empower people. And so, Inabura is a Japanese word that means empower and enable. And it all kind of stems in from our vision, mission, and. Um, purpose really and i want to get really stuck into that today because i know that you are this you know this is very a big a big part of who you are um around kind of you know heart-centered leadership and i I know you have a very deep sense of care not only for the people that your um, team are caring for but also for the people in the company so i'm going to dig right into that today but just to give people a bit of um, context as to where the business has come from so you you founded this in 2008 when you were 24 right so you're sort of third is this the 13th year would that be right (laughs) Yeah, we're 13 years wow. now in the business. I don't know what I was thinking at 24. <laughs> and if you, you know, if, if I was to, yeah, have that option again, I'm not sure. <laughs> or maybe I'm just saying that. No, it's been an amazing journey. Um, I couldn't find a job. I was moving in and out of different industries and I just couldn't find something that was meaningful and really, um, yeah, purposeful enough or motivating. 
And then I fell into uh, a role as a carer in a nursing home. And um, yeah, that sort of, I think, really lightened up my spirit. And six months later, which was my longest standing employment, mm-hmm. six months, um, I found I, I was an accidental entrepreneur. So I found myself pretty much incepting this idea of alternate care in the home uh, for people that were was aging. That, was that and a popular so, thing at that stage or was that a sort of new was that a sort of new concept? Because I understand that Australia was maybe a bit of a laggard behind some other countries that had been doing had a stronger kind of income in home care system than we did for some time. Like what was it like in two thousand eight when you when you started it? Well, 98% of the sector, even a decade ago, has was dominated by not-for-profits right. and charities. So there were, there were definitely not-for-profits that were doing home care services, um, but absolutely residential care was, was the bigger piece mm-hmm. in, in care. Um, and, and also the fact that, yeah, so there weren't a lot of private providers, so it wasn't popularized. And a lot of the funding was, it was coming straight from the government to charities. So I guess where I sort of uh, thought, you know, our business would be able to add value is one, it would be a, it would be a private mm-hmm. provider. So the service offering would be a different level of quality uh, and expertise because it would be privately funded by the individual as well, not just subsidised by government mm. care. Yeah. And the uh, I'm keen to get into some of the points of differentiation of around the way, you, I mean, because this is a really busy space, right? I mean, you will have seen a lot of change in the last 13 years from, you know, the, the number of people that I know that have businesses in this space and the number of people who have sort of entered the space is, is, uh, has been quite significant. So I'm keen to talk to you about the differentiation, but just for the audience's benefit, um, you know, my understanding is you're now, uh, you've now probably got, if you think about the mix of your full-time equivalent staff, which is, uh, I believe, about 85 and over 800 carers, which is, if you put that all together, it's probably about 350 full-time equivalent staff, but is that's five times what it was five years ago, right? When it was like 75. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's exactly right. How do you feel right. when you hear those numbers um, said out aloud? I'll be really honest with you. It sounds small. Does it? It sounds small. So it sounds like, oh, there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of impact mm-hmm. we can make, and there's still there's still potential. That's what it that's what it sounds like when you say those Got numbers it. to me. Got it. So what about tell me about the differentiation? And I'm really keen um, to hear about this because uh, it sounds like you've you've really taken quite a conscious um, approach to how you have built uh, a leading brand uh, in this space, and it is absolutely seems to me ultra competitive um, at the moment and the number of new entrants and new players and particularly when uh, which I certainly saw in the education sector you know when there is new funding regimes that can be quite material in size like things like the NDIS you naturally get a clamber of activity and a lot of people thinking it's going to be some kind of shortcut to uh, something wonderful and then you have people that have actually been in the game stayed in the game but have carved out a really strong position how have you thought about your differentiation like what what has what what does it look like and how did you decide to carve out those pieces of differentiation? So just to your first point, you're absolutely right. When the NDIS launched um, the, these reforms, it's it's collectively in the next five years going to translate into a $40 billion industry in Australia. It's huge. The disability services is a, is a huge opportunity, I guess, for someone looking to to come in we had 9000 providers 
in New South Wales alone. So highly competitive. 9,000 wow. providers that, and, um, and the majority of these providers were, were incepted when the scheme mm-hmm. was launched, but they're very mm-hmm. new. 60% of them are small or micro mm-hmm. providers. So that sort of just, you know, shows the landscape and the, the opportunity for consolidation mm-hmm. in the future. In terms of our differentiation and with a lot of this activity and competition coming into the market, I know it sounds cliche, but I'm going to go back to culture. I think, you know, we're human services and the potential for humans to whether, you know, whether it's outperforming themselves or being totally unpredictable and stuffing things up, we are in human services. Um, Our differentiation is first and foremost our culture, and it's something that I've really focused on in the organisation. It's as long as we look after our people, and that's our our full-time staff in the office and our carers are really looked after, we know that they'll look after the clients. That's number one. And then I guess our number two differentiation so before you talk uh, about number two, let's go back to just culture on number one. What would be some tangible examples of what does that actually look like? So what is it that you do in your culture? What are some examples of the things that you do that you actually think are really um, make a big difference into what essentially then flows through to the end customer because you're in a services business, right? So what are some of those things that you do differently that you think really have some big impact? Yeah, good question. So zero to eight years in the business, like your first sort of five to eight years are very, very intense. As a founder entrepreneur, uh, you are highly, highly operational and in the detail, especially in a business like ours, which is very regulated, there's high levels of compliance and you need to have very, very strong levels of quality across the service delivery. So I'd say my first zero to eight years was typical of any other entrepreneur and I was starting to become burnt out. And so where this whole philosophy around looking after our people really stemmed from was my own experiences of how difficult it was for me to balance growing this fast growth organization business with my own personal self-care. And then, you know, I was getting married, I was having kids. So that just throwing all of that in the mix, that made me look into opportunities to look after myself Mm -hmm. first. I started to introduce a lot of things in my life around self-mastery and, you know, principles around self-care, starting from meditation all the way to nutrition and, and sort of physical intelligence. And, and because of the benefits that I was seeing, the clarity that I was bringing into my role as a CEO, uh, the decision-making started to improve the energy levels. And, and so of course that's, um, that influences the rest of the organization and the people. I thought, okay, I've got to share some of this with with our people because they need to be equally resilient. You know, if not now I'm starting to get further and further away from service delivery and those carers are still there. They're the ones doing the hardest job, which is looking after people that are vulnerable and very challenging Mm. sometimes because of the mental and physical disability Mm. they've got. So I wanted to introduce a whole self-care program. So our culture, so to answer your question about the culture, it's all about self-care. It's about mental resilience. It's about really every single person in the organization having the same tools that I do, that I have, so they can bring in the best version of themselves. And if they apply those very basic sort of sort of tools to look after themselves, they will then continue to look after And how clients. does that turn up? Is that something now, that you've designed a program that sort of 
everybody has to go through or is it more about you making the resources available and it's a bit of sort of pick and choose and their self-motivation self-interest to actually take advantage of it how do you how did you find that balance yeah it's the second mm-hmm. um it's close to, to okay. your second point it's very much about you know it's not a it's not a program it's really tools and 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 the other thing is that these tools are evolving like you know that from a decade ago to five years ago to today, the information and the understanding we have about the capability of our, you know, our our mindset and what we can do, for our brain intelligence, our gut health, you know, all of that, and how it's also inter um, interrelated. Well, no, we just keep introducing all of those things in, and it's a pick and choose, and I mean, I think in the future we will start to formalize a lot of this but i think what it's done so far is that because our people know that they are looked after and they've got the opportunities to focus on these things it's kind of in our culture and our dna uh they it helps with the retention it helps with keeping the right people Mm. in the bus because the ones that are focused on their um their stamina their resilience and then their best self and then then they're performing at that level. We want to keep those people yeah, anyway. They can turn up and give more, right? Right in the right yeah. culture. Yeah, I got it. So that's <laughs> yeah. so that's one kind of key uh, element. Uh, so that's um, obviously there's a lot of things that go into culture, but that's a that's a great example of you know something that's really unique to the way that you're leading your culture. What was the the second point that you were going to talk to in terms of differentiation? Yeah, the second thing that I was going to talk to was embedding technology across the organization. I think technology, uh, especially in the healthcare sector, is underrated to probably now with the recent events with COVID. Um, there's definitely an uptake, but technology for us has been something that has been a huge focus right from the beginning. So third year into the business, I would have, I think I saved up about $80,000 uh, invested in it purpose-built CRM system, scheduling system, which differentiated us from all of the uh, sort of off-the-shelf options at that time. And because it was so bespoke and so specific to our business needs, you know, that was the thing that got us to hitting those million, million-dollar revenue uh, points and also the growth. I think in that, when we introduced that system in the first three years of introducing it, we were growing at about 169% wow. year on year. And was that like a system that you, so, did you custom develop it or was it like a Salesforce backed application that you sort of customized? Like what, how, what was the approach technology wise? No. So what I did was, um, yeah, that I basically observed everything that was happening in the organization that was mundane and repetitive and just inefficient, created duplication of work process mapped it out we um yeah we worked with a developer and then created our own purpose-built so ground up system and very very specific to our business needs and then in 2017-16 when the ndis rolled out we then uh yeah we lifted we we made some sort of changes to that system for for it to be more direct Mm -hmm. care because we transitioned our business from a B2B to a B2C. Okay. Can you just explain that? Did you, you give, give people an example of what what did it look like when it was B2B? Like who's the typical customer and how are you serving them? What does that look like in the B2C model? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So just to give you some context, when I first started the business, um, we were very much focused in aged care because that was my experience as a carer. 
So the first eight years of the business looked like private care services, home care services, and then partnering with nursing homes and hospitals to provide them with nurses and carers. So the system that we developed was a basic scheduling system to be able to manage the logistics of these carers and nurses traveling geographically to deliver mm -hmm. care. But then when the when the privatization of this industry um, was starting to be introduced through the reforms, the NDIS and MyHK in 2016, we basically had to cannibalize every single process and, and technology and application, including this system, to make it uh, suited for delivery of services, predominantly for direct care, because we were now competing with all of our partners. Uh, with the reforms, there is really no margins and no need to have subcontracting right. or this level of re relationships yeah. Yeah. effectively. Got it. And so given that uh, sort of evolution, has that also ever been, it's clearly been a big enabler of your ability to scale the organisation. Has it also been, have there been some major, have there been any big problems? You know, sometimes when you end up with custom development, I don't know, the your developer runs off with code or, you know, things break and nobody else knows how to fix it because it's all been custom. Like, have you had any sort of challenges with the technology development that you've done? We've had, yeah, there's been some major challenges. Well, the first time that we hired someone, he uh, pretty much took the money and ran. Uh, so that was a very good lesson for me at the age of, I would have been 26 then, very ignorant and realized that it's good to have good contracts in place where <laughs> you have sort of payments um, uh -huh. on delivery as opposed to upfront. So that was the first experience. But then the, the second time around, you know, I did a lot of due diligence and we went with the right sort of software application uh -huh. organization. Yeah. So they've been our partners until now, but we are now again looking at the right provider for, for our size of organization. Yeah. Um, in that, we had a very tragic experience in between. So in, when the reforms were being launched and we were doing this major change and upgrade to our system, when they, when they made the changes and they were going live on the day, they accidentally loaded information from three weeks ago so all of the information was three weeks old, which meant all of our service informations and all of the service related information that went to carers was three weeks old. So you can imagine, I think back then we would have had 250 carers. They all went to wrong shifts at wrong oh, times wow. at, and our call center was, um, was just going nuts with complaints. So that took us about a month to figure out what had happened and then fix it. Um, but that was just another issue. Yeah. So, um, yeah, problems what did definitely you, what do did you stem take up as from... a lesson out of it? You know, what would be the sort of practical lesson for first time founders who are kind of going through this process? Maybe they're developing their own systems or they're engaging a supplier to help them on that journey. What did you learn from that that you think people could um, take as a lesson for themselves? I think when with any of these instances, my biggest lesson is get into the detail. Like you just can't reply, you can't rely on suppliers with your business, you've got to get into the detail. And again, in that mix, like I didn't confirm that little level of detail for them. It was fine for them to load up information or three weeks ago or whether that was an intention or not. They didn't realize the impact mm. that was going to have. But if I had asked those questions, I think we, we wouldn't have got, we wouldn't have experienced mm. that. You know, so it's really having those checklists about what is so specific to your business and making sure that you're holding your suppliers mm. accountable. Yeah. 
and the sort of testing that goes along with it, right? I always found that because um, I've done quite a few technology implementations, particularly in contact centers and so on, and having the people that you know inside the organization that you can trust to do the testing, who know that thing just inside out, know every field, have built the reports, know how it moves from one place to the next and have them test the the hell out of it uh, can also be a, a big help. So you, um, so obviously the, the scheduling of the proprietary technology has been a really scale enabler. Your culture has been a, a sort of scale enabler. What are one or two other things that you think have really helped sort of change the dial, you know, inflection points or decisions that you've made or investments that you've made that have really helped that acceleration? What has helped our acceleration? Um, probably flat organization. Okay. I think that's a really big one. I think when you're trying to grow, the less layers you have in the company, the better. So well, we've been pretty flat. And then the points where we had stalled growth was when we had too much middle Got management. It. And then again, All had right. to clean it up. So what do you, um, is there, through the, that process, has there been any learnings around the number of people that somebody can, you know, that obviously the flip side of a flat structure is that sometimes people can end up with too many people and then those people underneath them don't get enough, uh, enough time or sort of enough um, guidance. How have you, how have you found the balance? Like how, what have you learned through that process and what's been the right model for you? I think that my experience is that seven to eight is a sweet mm -hmm. number. Like your seven to eight direct reports and team sizes is great. You can get in, and again, I mean, this might apply differently to different businesses, but our business is highly transactional, highly transactional, and we're dealing with people's lives. So having too many direct reports or too large of teams, um, the leadership is not able to get into that level of mm -hmm. detail that they need to. So I think that that's probably sort of the indicator I would use in an, in an organization, especially, which is very transactional. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anything else that you want to share just in terms of the, um, I guess the sort of the dial changes, big decisions, big investments, big moments. Um, we've made some mistakes in the business. I think, you know, one of them is, so part of our roadmap and our strategic initiative is to have more local okay. footprint for our organization. And we think we need that because of the level of personalization that's required in, in our nature of work. But doing something like that too soon when you're not ready, when you don't have the right culture and mm -hmm. foundation. So that's been a probably a, a mistake in the business where we've, you know, taken on an office too early, but hadn't had the right sort of team and management to be able to mm -hmm. drive that. So I think really considering, especially when you're in that sort of first decade of the business, do you need to make certain investments or can you hold them off until you have the right level of mm. resourcing? Because it is, I think we get very excited by our own ideas and sometimes a little bit too optimistic um, and then we burn money. So yeah. that's probably mm. one thing. And was that sure. when you think about the local presence? So that's about, you know, establishing an office in a local area, you've probably got some kind of a manager, some, you know, some stuff on the ground, et cetera. How much of that uh, learning was about the people that you had available to you that you could deploy appropriately to sort of manage that and make it work versus sort of other elements? Like what, what was it that you took out of that as a learning that went, you know what, if I'm, if I'm going to do that again, this is what I've got to get right in this order. How, how do you think about that now? Always. So it's always people. You're absolutely right. Every single time it's people. You can have very little resources of every other kind, but if you have the right people, you'll, you'll still be successful. 
And and those people by nature, especially in sort of that scaling up organization, need to be resourceful. Like the number one characteristic that I look for when we're we're hiring, and I still hire, I always do the final mm-hmm. interview every single person that comes in in the business is resourcefulness like i look for where have they applied that in the past roles um yeah you get people that are too cushiony and too used to the cushion and they're they get you know they're not right for a scaling up organization or Mm. a model of that i I see regularly um founders in that uh, who are doing the best they can to get themselves out of the way and, and hire some good people but they often they hire for elevated titles and elevated status. They're like, oh, I really need a COO. And the person comes in assuming that they're going to have, you know, they're going to be delegating and working on strategy and all the rest. They're like, no, no, like I need you to, I need you to do that report and I need you to work that out. I need you to write that job description. I need you to go and do the hiring. And they're like, oh, that's like, that's a big mismatch. And so sometimes I think people go a bit too overboard or actually maybe they need a, just a really solid operations manager that they can grow into a future role, maybe even partner them up with some mentoring externally from someone experienced to make sure they're building that internal capability and building that sort of succession uh, with the person. But I often see smaller businesses really going overboard with titles and salary and then getting incredibly disappointed because the person is not hands-off on enough doesn't want to take any instruction or guidance or feedback, harder to shape. Um, and uh, there's obviously a time and place in every business to uh, to recruit those people, but sometimes in that sort of sub 10 mil um, range, people can over overbake it. Have you found that? Yeah, absolutely. I think at every point in the business, when, when we're making decisions around the next hire, especially at the um, sort of the executive level, the mistakes that I would have made from the... Um, the, yeah, the south of the 10 mil mark is absolutely hiring people that have, that want the title, they come with from very large organizations and they just can't fit into the size of the business that we have. Um, so at every single point now, it's that checking in, you know, what's the right person that I need with that level of experience? And yeah, definitely not over, over sort of compensating that role. And do you look for people who... And this might, this no doubt changes by role, but do you look for people who've been to the next stage and therefore know how to craft a path for that part of the organization to get there? Or are you more interested in people that you can grow and mentor into that? They're probably cheaper and less experienced, but um, are not necessarily just going to take the reins on that function or that sort of area of the business. How do you think about uh, getting that right? We've actually done a combination. So if I think about where we are in our business now, we've done a combination. So in our sales um, management, we've got someone who scaled up other organizations and they've come into the business and, and are doing really, really well. And then on the other side, in our people and culture and our head of people and, people and culture, this person will now grow with the mm-hmm. organization, but then they're very, very talented and exactly in their right. So I think... It really depends. But, you know, the question that I asked in that interview with this sales um, leader was I said, can you really articulate for me why do you want to do it again? You know, why do you want to do it again? And it's that why, like they've got to have a very, very, they've got to be really passionate about wanting to do that and knowing upfront, like I was really clear that you're, you're very much going to be building this and you may not have the resources available to you that you had in your previous organization. Um, so it's it's also having that real transparency mm. and communication and 
I agree because when you've got a great person in front of you and you think, oh, they've got the talent, I know they can do it. But to your point, if the motivation's misaligned and they're thinking, I'm ready for the next challenge, you're like, no, no, this is like replay of challenge one, but actually it's going to be a lot harder because <laughs> you're going to be less resourced. Right. You've got to really want, you've, they've absolutely got to really want to do that. And there's lots of reasons why they might. Um, but uh, yeah, the, aligning that motivation is key. Can I ask you, Esha, yeah. you know, what, what on a personal level makes you come alive in business? I'll give you an example of a friend of mine who was diagnosed with schizophrenia eight years ago. And we, um, so I found out a couple of years ago and started on the journey with the NDIS, started to put some supports around her. Um, and she now works in the office two days a week and it's completely transforming her life and her outlook, her mindset. And then three days a week, she's doing a mental health course at TAFE, subsidized. Um, through the government, that that brings me to life. There were about six years um, where she was locked up in her bedroom, writing on walls and talking to herself. Um, when I have very difficult days in the business, and there's probably more than there needs to be, <laughs> um, that it's stories like that that really that wakes mm. me up in the morning. Okay, and so given those natural. Uh, there are always going to be really challenging days uh, in the business. Well, who do you lean yeah. on? I mean, you know, sometimes you face some incredible, you know, it's a lonely, it really is an incredibly lonely job at the top, right? You know, that you, you often have a lot less uh, people around you. And I know that both you and I are, you know, part of the same network in terms of YPO, uh, Young Presidents Organization, which can offer you some really amazing, you know, access to some amazing peers. But when you think about some of the hard stuff you've had to go through as a founder, who have been your sort yeah. of go-tos as a, who do you lean on to make sure that you get through those? Yeah, well, I was going to say YPO Gold mm -hmm. members, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, um, absolutely anyone who's got 20 to 30 years more experience on me is who I would lean on for very difficult situations. Um, but more than that, and more recently, I think it's actually meditation. Okay. It's self-reflection mm -hmm. and being alone. I just find that a lot of answers are w within us, but we're just too clouded. We get too messed up in the, the chaos and we get too consumed in it. I just step away now. I really step away. And I still lean on my peers and the more senior YPO members to reaffirm my thinking. But many times I've realized I actually know the answer. And I think a lot of the listeners today that are in business or thinking of you know getting into business, we all know the answers. It's, it's if we give ourselves the moments of silence, those answers will, will appear mm. for us. Yeah, sometimes it's about, um, it's about, if you think about what meditation gives you the opportunity for, it's like a safe space with a mirror, right? Like it's allowing those, the questions that if you've got someone in your camp, it doesn't have to be clearly, it doesn't have to be YPO, it could be a mentor, it could be a friend, it could be anyone who you can trust to actually ask you really great questions that give you the opportunity to reflect in a discussion or equally it could be a meditative uh, practice that allows those questions to emerge and those insights to uh, evolve yeah i love that and how have you when you think about some of the advice that you've received i mean you, you will have been through some uh some incredible you know highs and lows in the business and there's probably some pieces of advice that have actually really stayed with you and become sort of part of who you are or how you lead or how you get teams through tough times or, or celebrate teams with great times what are some of the key pieces of advice that you've received and who did they come from or where did they come from 
Okay. Um, I received some advice from um, a YPO member, and he said to me, Isha, promote yourself every year. I remember, I think I met him, this was about six years ago. He said to me, just promote yourself every year. Just go with that outlook. So if there's nothing else you're focused on in your business, make sure that the next 12 months you're doing something completely different because if you're growing yourself, your business will naturally grow. So I, I took that very seriously, that mm. piece of advice, and I do that. I, I really plan out my own promotions. <laughs> it sounds funny, but like it's worked. It. Uh, and then... Probably the second piece of advice, and Janine Ellis from Boost Juice said this. Um, she she said that there's a there's a warrior and there's a warrior that sits on our shoulders, and you know you've got to you've got to make the intention to listen to the warrior, which is the one who's gonna he's gonna fight through everything that you have in front of you. And you've got to shut off the warrior. That's the negative one. That's the one who's worrying all the time and consumed in the anxiety and, and what could go wrong. And I often do that. In fact, that's a really nice one because it lightens me up because I actually imagine like little Isha in a ninja, you know, ninja gear on my <laughs> shoulder going, yeah, you can do this. I love it. So that's a, you know, Surely it's a in light- the future, you'll just be able to press a button on your desk and little holograms will appear, right? And you can probably interact with them in real time. <laughs> That'd be cool. 5G will no doubt make that available to us. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing, the third thing, which is my own experience is whenever I face a challenge in the business, I look at myself and I reflect on myself, like, where am I the bottleneck here? Or where am I the constraint in this problem in this business? And I just, I found that I've got to work on myself as much as the business. You know, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, we don't necessarily have, we don't have a structure where we've got a board or a manager or anyone giving us some critical or constructive feedback. Then that's where, again, it goes back to really looking at those principles around self-mastery and what are we doing to grow? Because wherever we can uncover our own limitations, I find that that just, that's helped the business sort of uncap its limitations. Mm. And I like that if you because if you think about one of the one of the fundamental human needs is, is the need to grow, right? So, you know, one of the things that I see that sometimes a risk in the absence of doing something like you're talking about is owners getting stale and owners getting bored because you know what? They're actually not getting their own professional development needs met. They're not getting their own need for growth. They might be growing financially and they're like, yep, it's great, money's good and so on. But I'm actually losing my mojo because I'm not actually growing as an individual. And that's, that only comes from actually continuing to tackle stuff that you haven't done before or trying new things and, and getting that evolution to your point, sort of designing the next job, even when you're the CEO, it's like, well, what's the next job? Okay. Well, the next job just might be me being a better CEO or a more competent CEO in, in certain areas. Um, but it ensures that personal satisfaction that comes from you growing, uh, not just succeeding, um, financially, which is of course only, only one metric, uh, Correct. Yes. So when you think back on your journey so far, what what are you proudest of? Ah, I was I was gonna yeah, the look Rummy and her coming into the workplace now and sort of um healing from her schizophrenia, I'm really proud of. I'm proud of all of the impact that we have to our clients. I'm also proud of winning third best place to work in Australia and New Zealand, according to the Australian Financial cool. Review. That's really, that's been quite a, quite a milestone. 
I think for us, and really speaks for what you know, our people and the energy and the and what they bring in. And then we're helping a thousand people every single week through our carers. That's that's huge, you know. That I'm pretty proud of that. I think you should be. I think you should be. And so now that you have this sort of. Um, you know, everything's very easy in hindsight to go, oh yeah, well, if I had my time again, I wouldn't have done this and I wouldn't have done this. I mean, fundamentally, we always make the best decisions that we can. I always have a firm belief. People always have a positive intention, at least for themselves, but usually also for others. Uh, and they're doing the best they can with the resources they got available, right? So they're making the best decisions they can at the time, as we all are, including founders and CEOs and, and the rest of us. But knowing what you know now, as you think back if you had your time again what would what would you do differently mm-hmm. i'd have more breaks i i can i can honestly say that my first out of office ever was maybe 8 or no not even 8 it was 9 years because i waited till the reforms and we'd settled so it was probably 9 and a half years into the business was the first time I remember taking a week off and I told my husband and I was like, you just, you've got to look after the kids. This is the first time I just want to be alone away from any responsibility. And I remember sitting at the airport because I was going to an ashram in India as a, like a meditation retreat. And I remember putting the out of office and I bawled my eyes out for like 30 minutes because I, couldn't detach myself from what I was like, that's so irresponsible of me. How can I put an out of office? No, I could never do that. And even then my little, you know, that voice was like, no, no, you need to be there for your people. Um, so I think, yeah, look, I would take more breaks. It's a ridiculous time to wait for a holidays, nine years. It's pretty up there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, and I would just do that more often because I think what, whilst I did grow the business and yes, there was a lot of success in that first decade, I'm enjoying the journey now mm. more where I'm still having breaks and still bringing, you know, that, that mm. energy back. Yeah, it's regenerative, uh, number one, reflective opportunities, number two, but, you know, founders can run out of energy in the tank, right? You know, and, and you're the one driving the bus. And so in the absence of your personal uh, mental and emotional and, and spiritual health, it's pretty hard to give energy to others, particularly in any organization where that's the job of the CEO, right? Is to kind of, well, it's a big part of the job is the building of the organization, which is people. And in a services business where it's also about care, it's probably, you know, multiplied by a few factors uh, because you probably have quite a, um, an emotionally intelligent um, community, very, you know, I imagine that they, their energy transfer in the business, <clears throat> given the kind of work they do, is very high. Uh, and so that's probably yeah. a really um, critical element. Thank you for sharing that. What about if we go out into the future? So what, is, what does the business look like three years from now? Three years from now. So we're, I think I'm very confident around our vision and it's going to remain. So we want to be the most leading and trusted provider. I believe in our values and I think every decision um, is going to be guided by those values. So we're all about being authentic, understanding, um, reliable and purposeful. We've got a very clear three year roadmap from here and we've got some, I guess, some initiatives that we're, we're 
aggressively working on our, our organization probably looks like it's going to dominate the eastern seaboard in our services um, in our care services which are non-medical support for aged care and people with disabilities um, i'd say that would be turning over anywhere between 80 to 100 million uh, which is yeah a good three and a half four times mm -hmm. our size yeah today so it's really going to be around working on those fundamentals you know our culture our people um, improving our presence in the community and having more local footprints, uh, embedding technology and now really looking at our tech platforms to make sure that they are uh, a lot um, more robust than where they are sitting at now and a lot more transparent actually. I think where technology is helping businesses is it's giving that transparency between a consumer um, and, and yeah. the business and in our case our carer yeah. as well. So really that transparency um, and and... And then finally, we want to have a we want to have a holistic service offering. So I want to make sure that the services that we've got, including Inabura now the new service division, uh, those service offerings are providing a holistic experience for our clients. So they don't need to have you know six providers that they're working with. They can just have us that that supports them in in those dimensions in those six dimensions. Mm, I love that. And you know what's what I love about what you said is that it's not full of we're going to, you know, it's all about international expansion and acquisitions and, you know, all these really cap. It's like it's more going, no, no, we actually know what our internal opportunities are and we've got a clear understanding of who our customer is and we actually just want to be able to create more value with and for the customer, i.e. understand what their problems are, be able to solve more problems in a holistic uh, manner. And I always think that's the most natural place for product development and proposition development to occur because you've already got that customer. If they already love what you do, why wouldn't you be trying to solve other problems that make sense? Uh, in the context of who they already trust you to be and the relationship uh, that you have. I have um, a final question for you, and this is a little segment that I have for each guest called Above All Else. And so I want you to imagine now, I mean, you've got quite a road to go. You've got clearly lots of energy for um, this business, you know, who knows, maybe other businesses as well uh, in the future. And so I just want you to imagine that you're now in your yearning years. You know, you've, you look back, you've achieved everything that you wanted. You've started as many businesses, you've been the CEO of as many organizations, whatever that sort of, you know, your fulfillment as an entrepreneur uh, looks like. And you have the CEO of the world's largest global community of first-time founders contact you. Uh, and they've got tens of millions of people that are sort of around the world, hungry for information from successful founders who, who've learned stuff over their time. And she asks you, for your three above all else's. So she asks you to finish this sentence. She says, the three things above all else, the three things that you must get right as a founder if you want to scale are, what would, what would be your three above all else's? My number one would be every decision that you make, make sure you can sleep at night. So where is that decision coming from and the alignment to values and integrity? To every interaction you have with another human being, how do you make an impact to their life so they remember you and you leave a legacy in their heart? You, through those interactions, you allow that person to have the... I guess the, the energy and the passion to be able to live their best version. And we're in such a lucky space 
as leaders, as founders, we can do that for our people. And three, if you're really going to start a business, make sure you're really clear on how it's going to impact community and people. Like we don't need another product. We don't need another, you know, piece of cloth or jacket or laptop. You know, where are you going to bring in a service offering that's truly going to change lives for the better? Those are my three. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those. I would like to acknowledge you for the way that you have built this organization and the impact that you're having in the world, because uh, I think the fact that you have taken such a heart-centered approach, both to the way that you've built your organization such that they can actually provide that that sort of throughput of your culture ends up in the hands of your customers uh, is wonderful to watch. And it's so gratifying to see people who have that, um, that sort of heart-centered and, and inspiring approach actually succeed um, commercially. And that's not necessarily about money, but that's about impact. Because if you fail to scale and you've got something that's really amazing to offer the world and people out business you, they sort of outscale you, outgrow you, take market share, and they have an inferior product, an inferior service, and that's getting into the hands of customer. That's the thing that, I think that's the thing that upsets me the most uh, in the world when I see great organizations that have the opportunity to go, but they actually just get outdone on business. Uh, And I think the fact that you've been able to bring these two together and that's increasing your opportunity to have impact is uh, is wonderful to watch uh, and so thank you very much for sharing your your story and some learnings for our uh, first-time founders today it's been incredible how, how can people get in contact with you or, or follow what you're doing or follow the organization yeah no thank you for that it's been a, it's been a really wonderful chat i can be contacted i'm probably most active mm-hmm. on linkedin so just isha obroy uh, on linkedin and you'll see me as the founder of afia care services in inabora um, yeah, I try not to get consumed in any other social media. So that's probably the best place. And then, um, yeah, just go to our website. And, uh, if, if you need to know more about our services, Beautiful. Afia Care Services, thank you so much for Isha for, uh, for, for your, sharing your time with us, uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed the show, uh, today and please, uh, well, um, join me in, in, in thanking Isha. Um, a couple of things before you go, if you have got value from today, and I'm sure you have, uh, from, uh, from Isha's, uh, wise words, if you've got some value, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the preferred platform. We're doubling down like you are. Pick one platform and go for it. That's the one that you know tends to be the most used. So by doing that, you do two things. One, you really give our team a thrill because they work super hard on producing this whole thing for you. It's not just me. There's, there's a group of other people involved. And of course, it helps other people find it. If you would like to be the first to know about when new episodes drop or notified when there's sort of tools and resources provided by guests or, or developed by us, uh, please just go to the website, scaleupspodcast.com and you can pop your email in there and you'll be uh, first to know. Of course, if you are a social animal, uh, feel free to find us on the socials. Uh, The handle is at scaleupspodcast. But remember before you go today, the only thing that can guarantee uh, that you won't scale is actually to give up when it gets hard, is giving up. So you have to stay absolutely unshakable in your faith that you're going to get there, but you have to remain flexible in your approach. You've been listening to the Scalots Podcast. I'm Sean Steele, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thanks so much, Isha. G'day, everyone. Just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, 
Nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week. Oh,